when a test comes from God, and when it comes from God with a good purpose or a good intention, either to strengthen that person or to show the strength that they already possess, then it is not a temptation, but rather it is a trial or a test. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Will every professing follower of Christ endure temptation? How does the Lord's Prayer become a help in time of need? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 11 of his 16-part series titled, Lord Teach Us to Pray. You're no doubt well aware of temptation. When temptation comes, how should you respond? More importantly, how did Christ respond? Join Tom today as he unpacks the rich comforts from God's Word. If you're in Christ, you have an advocate with the Father, one that will not tempt you beyond what you're able to endure, yet one that was tempted in every way you are, yet without sin. Let's join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Now, in the first three petitions of this model prayer, we have learned that we are to pray first and foremost about God. We are to pray about God's glory. May your name, God, be set apart and treated as holy. We are to pray about God's kingdom. May your kingdom advance. May other hearts come under the spiritual influence of your kingdom. May my heart grow in its submission to the rule of Jesus Christ, and may the literal kingdom of Jesus come soon. We're taught to pray for the will of God to be done. That is, for His sovereign will to be, to be embraced and accepted in our lives, His providence to be accepted, but also for His revealed will, what He has given us here in His Word, to be obeyed, believed and obeyed as it is in heaven. In the final three petitions of this model prayer, we're learning how to pray for our own needs, how to pray for the needs of this life. Give us this day our daily bread. For the forgiveness of sin, forgive us our debts. And for the pursuit of holiness. Now, it's possible that in these last three requests, there is a veiled reference to the Trinity. Several have seen this. It's, it's through the Father's providence that we receive our daily bread. It's His world and He provides. It's through the Son's sacrificial death that we are forgiven for our sin. And it's through the Spirit's power that we are rescued from temptation and evil. That may or may not be true. But what is true is this. The fourth petition Notice verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. That deals with all the physical needs of this life. Jesus teaches us to pray for everything we need to sustain physical life on this planet. For jobs and careers, for food, for shelter, for clothing, for health, for everything that has to do with our physical lives. But the fifth and sixth petitions deal with the spiritual needs of this life. And today we come to the sixth and final petition. Now, before we begin our study of it specifically, I need you to understand why we say that it's only one petition and not two. 
There have been those in the history of the church who've seen two petitions in verse 13. Luther and Augustine both divided verse 13 into two different petitions. One is, do not lead us into temptation. The second, but deliver us from evil. And so they taught there were not six petitions, but seven petitions. However, I I have to agree with most biblical scholars who follow John Calvin in this, and that is that verse 13 has only one petition in it. Why is that? Well, notice that word, but, in the middle of verse 13. It's a Greek conjunction. There are several Greek words for but. One of them is like ours. It's, it can be used in a variety of circumstances, and it's not very strong. However, this Greek word is stronger than the typical English word, but. It's a strong adversative. We could translate it like this. But rather, on the other hand, it's a word that connects the two clauses of verse 13 into one unit. Let me translate it for you the way we could, like this. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but rather, on the other hand, deliver us from evil. So verse 13 then is not two petitions, but it's one petition with two distinct parts. Now look at it carefully again. Look at verse 13 that we're going to begin to study today. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Lord is teaching us here and teaching us to pray this, that we need not only to be forgiven for sin in the past, but we need to be preserved from sin in the future. We not only need pardoning grace, forgive us our debts, but we also need sanctifying grace. We not only need to be forgiven from the guilt of sin, but we need to be delivered from the power of sin. A.W. Pink writes, We cannot rightly desire God to forgive us our sins unless we sincerely long for the grace to abstain from sin in the future. Simply put, this final petition is a prayer for personal holiness. Now, The sixth petition is, as I said, one request with two parts. There is, first of all, the negative side, and that is pray for spiritual protection from sin. Notice the first half of the verse, lead us not into temptation. And then there's the positive side. We're told to pray for personal holiness. The second part of the verse, but deliver us from evil. Now, let me just say as we begin, I think this is the most difficult part of the Lord's Prayer to understand. And therefore, I think it's often the most frequently neglected as well. Frankly, as I have studied it this week, I've been reminded that it deals with some of the most profound and complex theological ideas and issues in the entire prayer. My own brain has been stretched and challenged as I've studied it, and my own theology has been enriched. So let's begin today with the first part of this verse, the negative side, in which our Lord says, pray for spiritual protection from sin. Look again at the first half of verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. And lead us not into temptation. Now, let's notice, first of all, the meaning of this word temptation. Because Jesus describes our problem in this one word. This is the chief enemy of our souls. 
And immediately we're confronted with a challenge. Because the very same Greek word can have two very different, similar but different meanings. First of all, this word that's used here, that's translated temptation, the the family of words, can mean an external test or trial to determine the inner quality of a person. An external test or trial to determine the inner quality of the person. We normally use in English the word trial or test to describe this idea. When a test comes from God, and when it comes from God with a good purpose or a good intention, either to strengthen that person or to show the strength that they already possess, then it is not a temptation, but rather it is a trial or a test. And the Scripture often speaks of God doing this. Let me show you a couple of examples. Turn back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 and verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God, here's our word in the Septuagint, the the translators of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, into the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used primarily in the first century, when they translated this Hebrew word, they used the same word Jesus uses in the sixth petition. But here, notice, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I want you to go to the land of Moriah and offer Isaac there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. This was not a temptation to do evil. This is instead a test of Abram's faith. It was for good purpose and good intention. It was a test. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and you see God doing the same thing to the children of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Moses says to them as they're preparing to go into the promised land, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, here's our word, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Notice verse 16. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good to you in the end. There's the key that distinguishes a test from a temptation. A test or a trial is intended to do good to you in the end. It has good purpose. It has good intention behind it. It's not to cause you to sin. And so God often does this. In fact, Jesus does this with his disciples in the New Testament. Turn to John 6. There's a fascinating passage in John 6. You remember that a crowd gathers in the early part of John 6 there, and uh, verse 2, a large crowd followed him. They saw the signs he was performing. Jesus, verse 3, sits down, as he often did, and began to teach. But verse 5 says, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing what a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that we may eat? Now, notice verse 6. This he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. This was a test for Philip. 
We also are the recipient of many different tests of our faith. Turn to James chapter 1, this familiar text. James says, consider it all joy, James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or, or tests, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, the ability to remain under, and it, it proves who you really are. God knows your heart. His intention is to show you, not primarily to show himself who you are. So there is, with this Greek word, this idea, an external test or trial to determine or to show the inner quality of a person. But that very same Greek word can also refer, secondly, to an internal solicitation to sin. An internal solicitation to sin. This is how we normally use the word, not trial or test, but in English, temptation. It's the same Greek word, but it can be used either of this test or trial or of an internal solicitation to sin. When the test comes from an, from, not from God, but from another source, and we'll talk about the sources in a moment, and when it comes for evil purposes, wanting you to fail, wanting you to sin, then it's no longer a test or a trial, it's a temptation. And oh, by the way, a test or a trial can also become a source of temptation because of our sinful hearts. This is how the word temptation, this concept, is how this word is used in James 1 when James writes, each one is tempted or tested when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Clearly in that context, we're talking about not an external test intended to show your faith is strong or to strengthen your faith, but rather an internal solicitation to evil, to get you to sin. So James uses this word and says we need to rejoice in our trials. Jesus uses this word in Matthew 6 and says, pray that God will not lead you into, and he uses the second sense of the word, temptation, an internal solicitation to sin. So the translators then have correctly chosen the English word temptation. John Owen, the great English Puritan, defines the second sense of this word and the one that's used here in Matthew 6 in this way. Temptation is anything that has a force or efficacy to seduce to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires, into any sin in any degree whatsoever. So it's anything that comes into your life, it's anything that causes you to turn from the obedience you owe God toward disobedience and sin. That's a temptation. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Now, where does this great enemy of our souls come from? What is the source of temptation? Or better yet, what are the sources of temptation, of this solicitation to do evil? Well, there are several of them, and let's talk about them. We need to be forearmed against our enemies. There is, first of all, the flesh, what the Bible calls the flesh, Our enemy is within. 
the comic character Pogo uttered those famous words, we have met the enemy and he is us. That's exactly true. Augustine, the great saint, prayed, Lord, deliver me from myself. Paul in Romans 7 cried out, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? You see, our biggest problem with temptation, your biggest problem with temptation, doesn't come from the outside, it comes from within. Your greatest enemy is inside your own soul. And it's what the Bible calls your flesh. Jesus describes this in Mark 7, and I won't have you turn there, but in Mark 7, you remember, he says, listen, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. Rather, it's, it's what comes out of his heart. It's from the heart and the evil thoughts of the heart that come all of the sins that defile us. Now, James makes this very clear, and I want you to turn to James 1. And notice what he says, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Now stop there. The word tempted here is the very same family of words translated in the first verses of this chapter, trial. Remember what I told you? The same word can mean either an an external test or trial meant for good or an internal solicitation to evil. The same Greek word is used in the first few verses of James, translated trial, even in verse 12, translated trial, And in verse 13, it's translated temptation. Why? Well, the context makes that clear. Let's read on. Let no one say when he is tempted, when he is solicited to do evil, I am being tempted by God. Either directly, there are people who say, God, you did this. You're the one who put me in this situation. You're to blame. James says, don't do that. But also, we're tempted to do this indirectly. Many of us don't get quite so blatant in our accusation against God, we say things like, well, it's not my fault, it's the woman whom you gave me. So our attack on God is a little more indirect, but it's still an attack on God. Listen, here's the bottom line. If you blame anything other than yourself for your sin, ultimately you're blaming God. If it's somebody in your life, it's some circumstance, whatever it is, if you blame anything other than yourself, you're blaming God. And James says, don't do that. Don't say the problem is God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. One Greek word, God is untemptable, literally. And he himself does not tempt anyone. God never solicits. He tests, but he never solicits anyone to do evil. So how does it happen? Verse 14 Each one, that's every single person, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. Those two Greek words translated carried away and enticed are two fishing words. It pictures a a fish sort of uh, resting among the reeds or among the weeds. And it's a hot summer day and he's just there resting, doing nothing, not in any trouble. And all of a sudden the bait plops in the water in front of him. And he is carried away. His attention is drawn to that bait. And then there is something in him that is enticed by that, that longs to have it. And he responds to the bait, snatches it. So what carries us away? What causes us to be enticed? It's not 
merely the external bait. Notice, we are carried away and enticed by our own what? Lust. The problem is not the bait outside, it's the enemy within. Because the enemy within, our flesh, responds to that bait and says, Ooh, I like that. I want that. Notice he says, his own lust. Just like fishermen use different bait to appeal to different fish, and even based on the season and the time of day, we all have this problem, but we have a unique blending or set of lust. Now, the word lust in English typically refers to sexual desire. And sometimes this word is used that way, but not most of the time. Most of the time in the Bible, this word lust simply means a strong craving or desire. And usually it's used negatively. It's a strong craving or desire for something God has forbidden. And notice, this comes from within. By the way, this word lust is used in the Septuagint to translate the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Paul uses it the same way in Romans 7. Talking about longing for, craving things that God has not allowed us to have. These lusts, here's, here's where I want you to understand the theology of this. Every person is born depraved. And part of that depravity is characterized by this unique blending of lusts that we inherited from our parents. We all have our own unique set that we inherited. Our cravings that maybe don't match perfectly the the guy down the street, but they're common in the sense that they're common to all mankind. And when we're saved, when you became a Christian, you were regenerated. You were made a new person in Christ. But in addition, the Bible says there was a part of you that was left unredeemed. Its beachhead is your body. Obviously, your body's not redeemed. But it's more than just your body, because Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 about cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the body and the spirit. But there's a part of you that is unredeemed. And the major characteristic of that part of you that is unredeemed are these cravings, these longings for things that God has not allowed and permitted. Peter calls them in 1 Peter two eleven fleshly lusts, fleshly cravings which wage war against your soul. You know that feeling. You know what it's like to have those cravings that reside in your unredeemed humanness wage war against your soul. This is the source, one of the sources of the temptations you and I face. Those cravings that reside in our unredeemed humanness that launch at external bait. There's a second source of temptation, and it's the world. The world. Not only the flesh, but the world. Not in the sense of the created planet, not in the sense of the human beings on the planet, but rather this word world is used in the sense of an organized, complex system of evil in the world that stands opposed to God. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2.2. He says, You formerly walked, that is, before you became a Christian, in your sins and trespasses according to the course of this world. 
literally according to the age of this world. Paul's talking about a mindset, the prevailing mindset, the prevailing values of the world. Everything in the world today that stands opposed to God. Think of it this way. It's the spirit of the age. You understand that the times we live in has a collective mindset, a collective set of values. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of his series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Tom will bring you part 12 on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces The Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter, as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, the Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.